0: Hi everyone. I'm your host Aviva Rumani and welcome to episode 24 of Kindred Cast. Liontree's biweekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media and everything in between. Today, we have the distinct honor of presenting a conversation with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, the first ever woman to serve in that capacity. Secretary Albrecht recently sat with Liontree CEO Arya Borkoff and her trademark insight, humor, and energy were on full display as she touched on her family's immigration story, her diplomatic challenges and achievements, and her upcoming book called Fascism, A Warning. We'll begin with a backstage conversation and then feature the full interview. Enjoy this candid and engaging talk.
1: This is a great honor here on Kindred Cast to welcome Secretary Albright. Thank you for being here. I'm honored that I could be speaking with you on our podcast.
2: Well, I'm delighted to be with you and have a chance to have a discussion now and later. It's really fabulous. Love it.
1: Thank you. And as everyone knows, Secretary Albright was the first female Secretary of State in our country's history and the 64th Secretary of State overall under President Clinton. We are at a moment in time for our country. That is quite interesting. Do you think we're going to make it?
2: Yes, we will make it, because people ask me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I say I'm an optimist who worries a lot. Mm -hmm. So I do think that we need to understand what is happening and be more active, I think, in terms of talking about what we see as the problems, what are the advantages of being the United States, and how the international system looks now in terms of what we want for the people of our country.
1: True. And this industry we speak about all the time in media and technology, which is our expertise for our clients and our audience, is constantly going through a period of transition. And many countries around the world are going through periods of transition as well. How are we faring in America in transitioning to the new economy, the new world order, the new competitive dynamic here?
2: Well, I think that we're questioning how well we're doing. I have to say that I'm kind of depressed when the president talks about us being victims all the time. I don't think we are. But I do think that we have not paid enough attention to what is going on in other countries, kind of thinking that we are America first and that we should be the first in everything, when in fact I think there are real questions about which areas do we really have advantages in, which ones do we have to think about something else. But I have to tell you something. I'm more of an academic. I have always been interested in the role of information in political change. And I wrote my dissertation on what happened in Czechoslovakia in 1968. And I wrote about Solidarity Press. And I do think that If one goes back to the printing press and the Gutenberg Bible and all that, we are in one of those periods where the role of information and how it is transmitted, where it is created, is playing a very, very large role. And with all the new technology, even more so.
1: I totally agree. In fact, I actually on the side produced a documentary called Out of Print that went to the Tribeca Film Festival which is all about reading and the library system mm-hmm. in a technology age and how we have the cognitive abilities mm-hmm. through technology, which we were once using through the writing technology or the book and so on.
2: Exactly. Yes. Yeah,
1: it's a similar dynamic.
2: But it is a change, and I think it always took uh, time to adjust to it in different times, and we're going to have to do that much more.
1: Yes, for sure. And for this country now, when you look at the country, you are reminded of the ideals on which we were created by the founding fathers. Do you think we've lost that or do we have to be reminded of those ideals now?
2: I think we have to be reminded of them because we are going through a period where because of this, quote, victimization, we're trying to find who is really responsible for it. And because we don't want to say we are responsible for it, we're blaming foreigners, and especially those who just want to come to this country in order to, according to this new mantra, exploit us when, in fact, this country is a country of immigrants. And you and I can prove that. I so remember, as a little girl, now 70 years, in November eleventh, 1948, coming to the United States on the S's America and sailing by the... The Statue of Liberty. And it does have a message. And I have been such a grateful American. What I like doing most of all are giving out naturalization certificates at those ceremonies because that's what America is. It is a land of immigrants, no matter what some people might say.
1: Yes, for sure. And I think also there is a youthful demographic emerging in this world, not just in this country, that has embraced the American idealism, whether they're in the Middle East or Africa when most of the population is under the age of 30. And I was moved, obviously out of tragedy, unfortunately, but I was moved by how much the students in Florida took it upon themselves to make the change. And I think we optimistically could hopefully see the next generation take it upon themselves to correct the issues, to solve the problems, to jump into the fray, to be entrepreneurs, to have American idealism around the world. And maybe there's a new society emerging beyond our generation, where we have to deal with conflicts, and they're saying, we're just going to solve these problems, thank you very much.
2: Well, I think that they are motivated, and certainly what I find interesting is, as you point out, out of great tragedy, something has emerged. Their articulation of the problems and their vehemence about doing something about it. I also do know from traveling a lot and being around, there are young generations everywhere, and they are playing a role. In the Middle East, for instance, very much so. I think that the youth in Saudi Arabia, for instance, is playing a role, and in Africa and a number of different places. So I do think there is a reason that we look forward to the next generation.
1: For sure. And Secretary Albright, you have a new book coming out called Fascism. I think it's your fifth book, if I'm not mistaken. Sixth book. So what compelled you to write the book, and can you give us a flavor of what it's about?
2: Well, the book's title is really Fascism. A warning, and it really does look at what has been going on internationally for some time. It's a book where I'm trying to sort out what are the symptoms, what are the causes of people wanting all of a sudden to have a leader that is telling them what to do. It has a very large history portion to it in terms of Mussolini and Hitler and then looks at a number of things that are going on in terms of the divisions that have been created in our societies that get exacerbated by some leader who sees himself as somebody who can, quote, solve the exacerbation while, in fact, is making it much worse and pitting one group of people against another. So it is kind of one where I'm looking at what creates these things apart that I have to say made me very nervous as I was doing the research on all of this. All these people have either been elected or given power constitutionally. This is not as a result of coups. And so I think one has to look for what has created these particular desires among people, both those that are calling for some change and then somebody, normally a demagogue, who takes advantage of it.
1: Last question for now is about women. How do we get to a point where women are treated equally, have equal pay, are looked at them based on their merits? Obviously speaking as the first woman Secretary of State and not the last for our country, how do we now empower the women of our generation to be treated fairly?
2: I'm very glad that people are now talking about it more. The Me Too movement, I think, is a very important one. But I also think that we have to make sure that we understand whether one's a feminist or not, that our societies are stronger when women are politically and economically empowered. And in practically every country, women are more than half the population. So it's a matter of kind of not taking advantage of a resource to make things better. But I think we have to keep working at it. And the part that I've kind of looked at a lot is, I've been at this a while, is that people thought it was done and that there were more women in high-level positions. That it was solved. That it was solved, and it is not solved. And so I think it's something that has to be worked at all the time. And women need to help each other. That is one of the things that I have felt very strongly about. So there's a a ways to
1: go. I agree. That's a great message. Thank you very much for being with us. I look forward to continuing our relationship.
2: I do too, very much. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Secretary Albright.
2: Thank you for being here. It's a great honor and pleasure to
1: have you here on stage of this conference and it will be casual but obviously with your presence here it uh, has a different level of impact. I
2: don't know about that but let's see.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well as everyone knows here Secretary Albright is the 64th Secretary of State of our country and the first woman to be Secretary of State. She also is the chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group which is a global strategy firm and chair of the Albright Capital Management Group which is an investment advisory business focusing on emerging markets which we will touch on a bit later. And we're going to get into a number of different topics. But first, because we were talking before backstage, I I really would love for people to hear your story because it's unique religiously and with your name and in your geography and your homeland. So how did you get to be an Albright and how did you get to be Jewish?
2: (laughs) Well, let me just, first of all, thank you for giving me this great pen. And thank you for telling everybody who I am Because a lot of people don't know. So what happened was, not long ago, I was coming back from China. And Chicago was the first port of entry. And I was there getting undressed for the security people. And I put my stuff down on the conveyor belt. And the lady behind me said, so where'd you get all those screw top bottles? And I said, well, I got them at the container store. So then I'm going through the magnetometer. And the TSA guard looks at me and says, oh, my God, it's you. Um, he said, I'm from Bosnia, and we all love you in Bosnia. And if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be a Bosnia. And you're welcome anytime in Bosnia. And can I have my picture taken with you? So we do our picture, the whole line gets screwed up. Uh, and I go back, and the lady of the screw top bottle says, So what exactly happened here? And I said, Well, I used to be Secretary of State, and she said, A Bosnia? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you.
1: Pleasure, yeah. <laughs> We all know who you are. Yeah.
2: But my story, my story. Do you know who you are? Uh, well, I'm, no, not always. So my story is the following. Actually, I was just thinking about the fact that it is 70 years that I came to the United States, November 11, 1948. My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat, and we had spent the war in England. He was with the government in exile in London, and then he became, after the war, the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. And the little girl in national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living. And then the communists took over, and actually 70 years ago today, in February 25, 1948, was the communist coup. And my father had a job at that point representing Czechoslovakia at the UN to do, deal with India and Pakistan over Kashmir. He came to the United States and defected and asked for political asylum. And we became refugees. My father went to teach at the University of Denver, and I ultimately went to college where I met somebody called Albright. <laughs> my name is not Madeleine Albright. My name is Maria Yana Korbelova. By the way, my grandmother started calling me Madeleine. She had no idea how to spell it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until I was in Switzerland that I got my nice French spelling.
1: The life of an immigrant.
2: Definitely the yeah. life of an immigrant. And so what happened was that Ultimately, I've spent a lot of time working in the government in some form or another, as well as being an academic. I teach at Georgetown University, and I've been in the government. I worked for Ed Muskie on, uh, in the Senate and then worked in the Carter administration and the Clinton administration. So to get to more personal part is that what happened when I became ambassador to the UN, my name was in the papers a lot, and I started getting letters from people, some of them written in undecipherable Czech handwriting, and some another, but they'd say things like, you know, I knew your father when he was in high school in 1915, which would have been impossible since he was born in 1909, and certain villages and dates, and said, and I, somebody would say they were a Jewish family, and since most of the stuff was wrong, I had no idea what people were saying, but then always the next line was, and I'd like a visa, or send me some money. So, You know, I kind of discounted that. Then what happened was that when I was being vetted to be Secretary of State, just before that, I had gotten a letter from somebody that had all the names of the villages right and the dates and various things saying, My family knew your family and was a fine Jewish family. So I'm sitting with the White House lawyer being vetted, and they asked me about taxes and nannies and various things. And then they said, We always ask this question of everybody is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't. And I said, well, I've just gotten this letter and it's perfectly possible that I'm of Jewish background. And they said, so what? The president is not (laughs) anti-Semitic. So then there was a reporter that wanted to write a profile of me. And you're not allowed to talk to reporters between the time that you are nominated and the time you're confirmed. But we gave him the names of various people that could talk to him in Europe. And two days after I became Secretary of State, he and another reporter came in to my office and handed me these disgusting index cards with the names from my family of people that have been sent to concentration camps. And it's one thing to find out you're Jewish, it's another to find out how many of your family died in concentration camps. And so the only way I can describe how I felt at the time was that it's as though I'd been the first woman ever asked to run the marathon representing my country, and When I start running, they not only give me a heavy package to carry, but to unwrap as I run. And so Mm. I was trying to prove that a woman could actually be Secretary of State while I was doing all this. And my brother and sister went to, still called Czechoslovakia at the time, and really were able to put the story together. And so two summers ago, I went back with my children and grandchildren and dedicated a plaque at Terezinstaat where 26 of my relatives died. So I was raised a Catholic, married an Episcopalian, and found out I was Jewish. And I have my interfaith discussions by myself.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Wow.
2: I did write a book about the role of religion in foreign policy called The Mighty and the Almighty. So I got into learning a lot more.
1: Well, given... Watch this bridge, guys. Given that religious transition you're talking to a group here that have been going through massive transitions in their own industries and media and technology all the time and our country in a lot of ways has been transitioning from when you were secretary of state when we were thought of as the superpower and the most competitive country and now people are worried that america is losing some of that competitive edge and we're transitioning to a new world order do you feel like that's the case
2: well, I do, actually. And let me just sound a little bit more like a professor at the moment. I think we are going through the third post-World War II phase. There was the immediate time after World War II where everybody was recovering and trying to figure out and issues about America's role in the Marshall Plan and trying to figure out how to operate during the Cold War when the world was divided into the red and the red, white, and blue. So that was one phase. Then the second phase was in the post-Cold War period, It was interesting, because the first President Bush was in office, and then President Clinton was, and it was a time where we were being asked to do something that had never been done before, which was how to devolve the power of your major adversary without a land war. And there were a lot of different ways of trying to figure out what the international system was, how to operate with a Russia rather than a Soviet Union, how to decide how the alliance structures would work, how would the United Nations operate. I think that we are now in the third period, which is very different. And it is different partially because of technology, mostly because of technology, and because there's a real question about what America's role should be. Actually, President Clinton used the term first, but I used it so often that it became identified with me that we were the indispensable nation. And I really felt that way, and so did he. And not so much because of what we needed to do internationally, but because we wanted to keep persuading the American public that we didn't have to run the world, but we had to be engaged in it. And there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It just means that we have to be engaged in it. Then, all of a sudden, we're in a period where I think we have not accepted enough the fact that there are many more countries that are out there as active players in all of this. Americans don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables and it ends in an (laughs) ism. But it's mostly partnerships and trying to figure out. And I do think that there have been other countries who are technologically capable and have a different outlook that have been able to either catch up with us or in some cases take a different lead in terms of how things work. But we are in a different era. I do well, believe
1: in the that. Olympics, it's Norway, Canada, and Germany who are ahead of us. But now, what countries do you think are leading in the world?
2: Let me put it this way. I think because, to some extent, we have created a vacuum, they are filling it, and the Chinese are really pushing very hard. Some, in terms of using our intellectual property, but I do think that there are pushes in a variety of ways. And I think that There are countries that have various pieces of things in terms of technology, the Israelis, and also, I think, in terms of some of the leading countries in Europe that have, again, pieces of it. But the main thing that I think has happened is that we have changed our approach to things by making us seem like victims instead of like leaders.
1: Well, what should America's role be today? And are we... Appropriately competitive?
2: Well, I happen to believe we are the indispensable nation. And I do think we need to be competitive. And I do think that we have the capabilities in terms of the way that many of the companies represented here, in terms of our capability of understanding our scientific knowledge, our entrepreneurial spirit, and the fact that we are capable of getting people capitalism actually is a pretty good thing and can bring people to help support those that have the ideas. I also do think that if one looks at this field, that immigrants are pretty useful, and that especially some of the technical knowledge that comes with having come from somewhere else.
1: The best hires. Yep. Yep. Talk about isms. You have a new book coming out called Fascism, A Warning, that's coming out in April. Why is this book so timely today?
2: Well, one of my issues is that I hate to sound so kind of sloppy sentimental, but the most important thing that ever happened to me was becoming an American. There's no question. And I'm a very grateful American, and I have spent a lot of time looking at our political system and have been involved in campaigns, probably more losing ones than winning ones. But it's fascinating to see what people want and how democracy really works. And one of the other parts, if I might say, that I very much enjoy studying and being a part of was the executive-legislative relationship, having worked for Ed Muskie, who was actually the first chairman of the budget committee. So we were looking at how the budget process worked and how it intersected with the executive branch. And then I went to work for President Carter doing legislative affairs from the executive branch. And so looking at how the system is based on those checks and balances and being a professor, kind of looking at what the political system is. And so I wanted to know what really is going on here in terms of the divisions that have existed now. When we came to the United States in the late 40s, early 50s, it's very different in terms of more melting pot. It was a middle-class country. There's no question. The middle-class aspect of it. And I remember my father saying, having come from a Central European intellectual system, that when his students from the University of Denver would all of a sudden end up in a gas station pumping, people used to do that for you, pump the gas, (laughs) that there were his students or students waiting on tables, that that would never have happened in Europe and that kind of middle class approach to things. And all of a sudden, you see huge divisions in this country and, and anger at the government. And so I decided it was worth kind of looking at what had happened in other countries. My book is literally fascism, a warning, because I go back and I look at what happened in um, Mussolini and then Hitler, and then kind of looking at some of the issues that are going on in other countries, Hungary, for instance, or Turkey, Russia, and looking at what the problems are. Venezuela. Venezuela as a warning, and what has happened in all those cases, it's bottom up of people being very unhappy in terms of economic divisions, And then the part that really creeped me out, if I might put it that way, all these people were either elected or got power constitutionally. This is not as a result of coups. And so it's the question of how the bottom-up problem percolates. And if there is a leader who is demagogic enough to be able to kind of manipulate all that, that is what made me nervous. Are
1: you worried about that for our country today?
2: Yes, which is why it's a warning. And I don't really write about current setup till the end of the book. But I do think it's worth kind of looking at the historical evolution of this.
1: What can we do about it? Because if you say that it's a people, populist-driven electoral cycle, and we possibly could elect fascist leaders, how do we stop that? Well,
2: I do think that what we have to do is remind ourselves of what really has made America what it is, which is the fact of diversity and of understanding We have gone through weird periods, I think. But to me, the economic issues at the moment are very bad. I think most of us here live wonderful lives. But what is amazing is how we don't know a lot of America in terms of where people really do not have what they need. And I think that we need to be more conscious of what the demographics are and the people are and how we get along. The other part of what's come out in my historical outlook on this, you always have to find somebody to blame somebody who doesn't look like you, who is an immigrant, you know, or anybody that isn't like you. And so I think that's the part that makes me nervous in terms of finding the various aspects and that we have to really fight against that actively and not just say this is going to go away.
1: Okay, let's shift to North Korea.
2: Um, oh, yeah, right. Because
1: um, <laughs> you are, we're going to tackle a lot in a few minutes. And then we will open up for questions because yeah. Secretary Albright does love to engage with the, uh, all of you in q and you were the first American Secretary of State in the year 2000 to ever visit North Korea. What do you think of the situation today versus what you saw then?
2: Well, first of all, let me say that the Korean story, just generally, is one of the most fascinating in terms of a peninsula that was divided, that people are exactly the same. And as a result of decisions made after World War II and the Korean War, it has developed a history of just an unbelievable division. And I'm sure that there are people here that have been to the demilitarized zone. I mean, it is really the looniest place you've ever seen it's so clear in terms of the division part that i found was the following first of all i'm still the highest level sitting official to have met a north korean leader and it's been 20 years anywhere anywhere wow. um and so just to give you a little bit of background there had been endless kind of ways of trying to get our head around their nuclear issue and i won't go through all that but there were lots of kind of talks of various levels going on What happened in August of 2000, the number two guy, Vice Marshal Cho, came to the United States and we had meetings and then we went to the Oval Office and he's there in his full uniform and gives President Clinton a red folder in which is an invitation for him to come to North Korea. And President Clinton rightfully said, I may come at some point, but I can't just show up. I'm going to send the Secretary of State. But we have no embassy there. And so had no idea what was going to happen. And the intelligence on Kim Jong-il, the father of the guy that's in there now, was that he was crazy and a pervert. So I got in touch with Kim Dae-jung, the president of South Korea. He had met him because the South Koreans then also had something known as the sunshine policy of trying to move the process forward. He said, no, you can really deal with him. Well, I got there and I found out he wasn't crazy. You're supposed to laugh. (laughs) What happened was I get to the embassy and I'm just sitting there waiting to figure out what to do. They clearly had cameras and listening devices and this audience would know this is that even if you type on a laptop they can tell by the strokes what you're typing. So we just sat there. So all of a sudden I get a message that I had to go and see Kim Il-sung, the dear leader, embalmed. So I went to do that and it's much more complicated than you think because... If you bow too low, then the American press will criticize you. And if you don't bow low enough, you have not achieved what you're supposed to. I must have done the right thing because I get back to the guest house and I was told that Kim Jong-il would see me. So we had our first press conference and it was like something out of the 50s with old cameras and things. And I'm standing next to him and we're the same height. I looked and I saw I had on high heels and so did he. And his (laughs) hair was a lot poofier than mine. Actually, when we had meetings, they really were very specific. And what we were dealing with at that point was missile limits and had gotten pretty far on it. And what happened, some of you may remember, the elections of November 2000. And I was there kind of the end of October. We were in the middle of negotiations. We get back to the United States, this transition from Clinton to Bush. What happens then is that I went and briefed uh, Colin Powell about what we were doing, and he was very interested in continuing. There was then a headline in the Washington Post saying, Powell to continue Clinton policies on North Korea. He was hauled into the Oval Office and told no way. Now, I hold no brief for the North Koreans, but we were in the middle of negotiations. Um, And it's unfortunate because missile limits would make a big difference at this point. I think that really... We need to talk to them, and I think the thing that is so important to remember, talking to those whom you dislike is not a gift. That is the way that things are done, and so I'm uh, hoping that some of the discussions that have come out in the last 24 hours that is conceivable that there will be some kind of a meeting, that that will be followed up. It is not a matter of giving anything in. You can't get any changes if we don't follow up. But it is a very, very dangerous situation. And it's dangerous because there are a lot of troops everywhere. We have had exercises. There are a lot of American ships in the region there. Uh, The question is whether we will resume doing joint exercises with them. And the South Koreans seem to have a somewhat different approach to this. And so I think it is very delicate. And the part that really bothers me is that we have no diplomats. Out there. We were about to have an ambassador to South Korea. His name was pulled because he had said that he did not like the idea of this bloody nose policy that had been enunciated. We clearly have no representatives in Pyongyang. We have the Swedes try to help us there. And the question is what the Chinese and Russians are up to. So this is one of the more delicate diplomatic things that needs to be done. And the question is how it is being handled and how the tweets interfere.
1: How different is the son from the father?
2: Well, we don't know. That's the other part. This is the only kind of dynasty of communists because Kim Il-sung, the father, was the founder and then his son, Kim Jong-il, did spend quite a lot of time with him. He knew an awful lot about the United States. He loved American movies. He was actually a choreographer, among other things. He wanted to know my email and then we didn't go on. And then the son, we do not know a lot about him. We now have seen a sister who mm-hmm. may have an important role, but we do not know. And we don't really know enough about the relationship between him and his military, of whether he has to give them a lot of toys to keep them on his side. So yeah. it's dangerous. It is about as dangerous as anything I've seen.
1: Another dangerous topic we're going to bounce around a little bit is cybersecurity. In one of the recent Senate hearings, it was talked about as our greatest threat and greatest concern. How do you think about how a country like America tackles a digital warfare versus a physical warfare in this day and
2: age? Yeah. Having kind of talked about the three eras, one of the things that really did happen in the post-World War II era, even during the Cold War, we were concerned about nuclear weapons and the way that our relationship was with the Soviet Union. And in the middle of all of that, we began a lot of arms control talks in terms of limiting nuclear weapons. There was a whole priesthood of people that dealt with that and were able to make some kind of sense in terms of policies and how we operate. All of a sudden, we are in a world where this is brand new and there are no rules. Just to tell you, my initial experience with this was a little bit different. At the 60th anniversary of NATO, which was like nine years ago now, I was asked to chair a committee of experts from 12 countries to help the new Secretary General on a new strategic concept. And one of the issues was whether a cyber attack was an Article 5 attack. Now, Article 5 is the heart of the NATO treaty, which is an attack on one is an attack on all. And what had happened was the Estonian government, which is pretty much an e-government, they had had an attack on their banking system. And they were kind of the example of what would you do about it At the time, there was a decision, we talked about this a lot, that because you couldn't identify the perpetrator, the genesis of this, could you, in fact, all of a sudden invoke Article 5, let's say, against the Russians? And so the decision was it was not yet an Article 5 issue, that it would be an Article 4 taken to NATO. So one of the questions that has been kind of shifting a little bit is who starts this? Can you really identify? I was just again reading about something at the Olympics is actually the Russians had been mucking around with the computers and they were blaming the North Koreans. So that's part of the issue. So there's that. And then there's the issue of are there any rules of the game? And I think that what does need to happen is to begin to see it a little bit the way the arms control talks began because there needs to be an international approach to this and to what extent... Do we use offense, uh, not just defense? But it's clearly the biggest issue out there. Clearly, you all know a lot more about it than anybody. But I think that generally people kind of are, gee whiz, what do we do? And yet they know that there are various aspects to it. And it can also affect infrastructure. So it's any number of different aspects. But I do think there needs to be some kind of rules of the game that begin to be developed. And you do it even with those you are suspicious of. And the only way to talk about it is as if it were nuclear weapons. Because that is what happened in our number of talks with the Russians on the START treaties and the SALT treaties.
1: Clearly it affects companies. I've heard or I've often said that there are two types of companies in this country, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. But it's much bigger than that, obviously. But there's another
2: part to this when you say companies. One of the issues in international relations that has been different historically now, is that since 1648, it's nation states dealing with each other, either kings or then later democracies. All of a sudden, we have non-state actors. It's not just terrorists. Businesses are non-state actors. Non-governmental organizations are non-state actors. And there is no issue that is more in the grasp of the businesses of the private sector than the whole issues of cyber. There's just no question. The government does not have all the pieces of this and needs to have the relationship with the private sector, which is obviously one of the things that you all have to take into consideration and know what incredible roles you play in all of that. Yeah.
1: We're going to have a few questions from you guys and put the lights on in just a few moments. I just have a couple more. Yeah, The other thing that we're grappling with is the role of the media. Obviously, we've talked about fake news. What is the media's role in your mind as a statesman and preserving our democracy?
2: Well, I think it's absolutely key. First of all, the natural relationship and the one that people in government don't like, it has to be adversarial. That's part of it. Journalists are there to get the facts and to, in many ways, put forward for the people. They are the, the check and the balance on that particular thing. So for me, it is an absolutely essential part, and I have spent a lot of time thinking about the role of information in political change and where it comes from, and I've spent a lot of time studying mostly Central Europe on this, but the media is the only way that we can really find out the truth. It's more complicated these days because it isn't three channels on TV or five newspapers or whatever, but everybody has their own source Of media. And the echo chamber, I think, is very complex. And there are real questions about what the role of the big companies are, who puts it out. And once the word fake news gets out, and you don't like it, then everything you don't like is fake news. In order to get around it, you have to read or uh, listen to or view a lot of different things and form your opinion. That part is very dangerous. It's actually the communists that used to talk about the press being the enemy of the people. You cannot begin to think that the press is the enemy. That is when things really get dangerous.
1: How do you get your news?
2: How do I get my news? In many I know different... Leslie
1: puts out the Friday night uh, no. top themes. Yeah.
2: No. What I do is I... Uh... <laughs> well, I start out in a really crazy way. I read on my iPad. Then the, the paper paper comes. Yeah. And I read five newspapers. I watch TV. Because I do think it's really important to listen to things that you don't agree with, as I drive, I listen to right-wing radio, and I yell a lot, and, and you should be glad you don't live in Washington because... <laughs> we hear you. Not only hear me, you might get nervous about it. <laughs> But Stay I do the the think people need to listen, read, or view things you disagree with. I think the worst part is if you only are the echo stuck... The Yeah, absolutely.
1: Moving to the barriers that you broke for women... 20 years ago, obviously you were followed with other Secretary of States, like Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton, but there's a huge gap that still remains both in government and obviously in our society. How do you reflect back on the last 20 years? What women have accomplished and why there are still issues to solve seemingly every day?
2: I went to a women's college. Uh, I did go to to college sometime between the invention of the iPad and the discovery of fire, but nevertheless, uh, and we at our commencement had the Secretary of Defense speak because his daughter was in our class. And he actually said, your main responsibility is to get married and raise interesting children. It's amazing that we didn't walk out. And this was in a women's college. And I think it's been very slow in a lot of different ways. And part of the thing is that there has been kind of a sense in many ways, whenever there is some kind of a barrier broken, that it's, finished and done, it's not. This is something that goes on all the time. And I've talked about this a lot when I've been abroad or even here, is that more than half the population in any country are women. And even whether you're a feminist or not, the bottom line is that it's a waste of a resource if you're not using women. And societies that, where women are politically and economically empowered are more stable. So this is a good thing. Women need to help each other I know there's some people who think it would be better if the world were completely run by women. If you think that, you've forgotten high school. But I do think that I prefer uh, co-ed. And I do think that it's a matter of not forgetting that things can get pushed back very quickly. Not all women agree on this. I'm very glad that I broke a glass ceiling. And others need to do this. And I used to make it a big point. Let me tell you a hard part. When I became secretary...
1: Just to people... pause on that, I just want to give you a round of applause. <laughs> <it. Yeah.
2: laughs> well, the thing, I never thought it would happen because my name was out there and people said, can't have a woman's secretary of state because Arabs won't deal with women. So the Arab ambassadors at the UN said, we had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problem with Secretary Albright. Then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, yeah, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. And I never thought it would happen. So when it did, I was really, really surprised. And the question was, what would I appoint men or women? And it was a no-win situation. I wanted to appoint a lot of women. And then somebody said, yeah, she's afraid of strong men. So then I appointed some strong men, and then the women said I wasn't helpful enough. So you know, it's a combination. It's and like I... bowing
1: down to the North Korean. Exactly.
2: You know. <laughs> and by the way, I was telling you, my father was Condi Rice's professor. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And my youngest granddaughter, seven, eight years ago, said, So what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Only girls are Secretary of State. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. You know, and then great, little boys yeah. got encouraged by John Kerry and maybe uh, Tillerson. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, we're going to take some uh, questions from you guys. Feel free to so fire away. can I just away, add one other yeah. thing
2: on women? I think it's very important for us to keep figuring out how to help and work with each other, even if we don't always agree on everything.
1: For sure. Someone over there, from here from Saudi.
0: Lovely to hear your talk, really enjoyed it. But I would love to know, you have a lot of relations with uh, people from the Middle East, politicians, private sector individuals as well. What's your take on what's happening right now in the Middle East, and more specifically with the Iranian-Saudi situation in Qatar?
2: Now, I have just most recently been spending a lot of time taking a deeper look at the Middle East, and to prove my bipartisan credentials, it was with Steve Hadley, who'd been the the, uh, National Security Advisor, under the auspices of the Atlantic Council, and we spent a lot of time looking at the Middle East generally, and very concerned about what was going on in terms of a crisis in the Middle East spreading out in a number of different ways, and complex in terms of some things that have to do with religion. Most Americans didn't know anything about Islam, much less the difference between Shia and Sunni, and then also between Arabs and Persians, and then issues about artificial states, borders that had been set up at the end of World War One, And so a great deal of complications, which all of a sudden are coming through in a number of different ways. And I do think that there have been obviously changes in technology which have made an incredible difference and a younger generation. What was interesting when we were in office, there was a great deal of time mostly spent on the Israeli-Palestinian issue and not that much on the other aspects. Now that issue for a number of different reasons has kind of been set on the back burner. And now the issues are much larger within the whole Middle East. I think the Iranian-Saudi thing is genuinely serious and very dangerous. It's difficult to figure out what the solutions are because they are over Shia, Sunni, Arab, Persian, and hegemony in the region. I am a professor, and I do a role play with my students. They have now been tasked with this scenario, which is what's going on in Yemen where people are starving and they're afraid also of cholera because of the fight taking place by proxy on that particular issue. And that is the kind of thing that is spreading out everywhere. Saudi Arabia, I think, is particularly interesting. I did spend time there. Are you from Saudi Arabia? Just to go back on something, when I was named, because one of my first trips actually was to the Middle East, to the Gulf Cooperation Council, actually I had less trouble with foreign leaders than I did with the men in our own government. I did arrive in a large plane that said United States of America. But I was having a meeting with the GCC. And when it was over, I said, well, thank you so much. We've had a terrific meeting. And perhaps you've noticed I'm not dressed the way my predecessors were. And next time, we'll talk about women's rights. And we did. And a lot of aspects of that. I do think that there is a mistake that American women mirror image everything, that everybody wants to be like American women. But I do think that what the crown prince has done on a lot of the issues to do with women in Saudi has been interesting and moving forward. So a lot of changes, and it's the younger generation. Next
1: question. Tony. Madam Secretary, as a first-generation immigrant, I feel the, uh, the elation that you had when you became an American citizen. But with that said, you could never be president, even if you wanted to. I've had the opportunity to ask this question in a number of, uh, number of forums like this, and I've always chickened out, but I'm not known to chicken out. Um, but I will ask it. Do you think that we will live to see the birthright uh, be sort of removed as a gate, if you will, to become president of the United States, given the composition of our country?
2: I think it's very interesting because there was a movement of some kind, and I decided actually to stay out of it. Orrin Hatch was somebody that began to talk about um, making it possible for uh, people that were not born here. And there was a discussion about the fact that maybe if you had lived in this country for X number of years, that that would make it possible. If any of you have seen Hamilton, you know why, that, why it is in the Constitution the way it is. It is interesting. I used to think that there would be something going on, but given the kind of feelings that are going on now, I'm, I think it's been set back. I think the other thing, though, that you'll be surprised about, is I do think it's important to live in a country. If you're going to be president, that you've lived there and had some of your education there. And I say, you're going to laugh when I say this, is that I was born in Czechoslovakia, and I went back a number of different times and became very good friends with President Havel. And on my last trip, there was this crazy trip. My staff was saying, why are you going to these villages and how is this working out? And we're standing somewhere with him. And all of a sudden he says, and I want uh, Secretary Albright to succeed me as president. And I'm standing there. (laughs) I thought, now what? And I said I would be deeply honored, but I hadn't lived in Czechoslovakia. And I think that makes a difference. By the way, because he was a playwright, What he'd been doing was identifying me with Czechoslovakia's first president, Thomas Masaryk. so we were going to his mother's home and all kinds of things. But I do think that one needs to have some kind of a a longer-term relationship with the country to understand the politics and preferably to have an education in that country. But I don't see... You know, whereas it might have been moving in that direction, I think it's gone backwards.
1: We have a question. uh, Ron first.
2: Secretary Albright... um... Concerning North Korea, when you look back, do you really not think that this is a
0: diplomatic, colossal failure of uh, arms control and non-proliferation regimes of four consecutive administrations? And the question is, if you had to look back, what
2: would you do differently in order not to reach the stage where basically someone... Is crossing the red lines for years and now is on the verge of nuclear weapons. You'll be so sorry you asked this. Uh, 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 I often teach <clears throat> about the unintended consequences of foreign policy decisions. So um, the United States is the one that hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think there really was a question all along in terms of had we done the right thing or not and whether physicists actually felt guilty that they'd split the atom. They go to President Eisenhower and persuade him that there can be peaceful uses of nuclear energy. He gives a speech in 1953 called Atoms for Peace in which there was a discussion about and made it very clear that we needed nuclear energy. And that was the basis of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and the IAEA, the creation of it. The countries that signed it were able to have access to nuclear technology. That is how Iran got its nuclear technology, sold by the United States, under that initial aspect of it. So that was already kind of a beginning of it, and the whole question about how the Non-Proliferation treaty operated. And there are certain countries that have not signed it, two of them being Pakistan and India. And I've just gone through our whole record with Pakistan in terms of trying to figure out how to not have them have nuclear weapons. And then the Indians exploded a weapon. It's a long story. Then there were North Korea. The NPT has been kind of erased at various parts. As a result, the deal of the NPT was the nuclear powers would lower their numbers of nuclear weapons and there would be no nuclear countries. That has not happened. And it isn't just the fault of the United States. It is just a general way of that there is trafficking in the nuclear weapons. And the Pakistanis, through A.Q. Khan, had sold a lot of stuff to the North Koreans. It is a failure. There's no question. And the question is, what happens now? But it is not just the American failure on this. And what happened was the North Koreans were signatories of the NPT. They then tried to get out of it. And we persuaded them through this agreed framework not to do it. It's a long story, but it is a failure generally of the system. It's very hard to walk back. I do think that we need to be very tough with them now, but not by making it worse, frankly. And I do think that there needs to be more diplomacy now. And by the way, I say in my class when I started, I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. So what are the tools? And there are not a lot of tools in the national security toolbox. They're all the same for every administration. You always say all options are on the table, but you don't make statements which make it sound as if we're going to use nuclear weapons. And therefore, I think we need to get back to some diplomacy and use the sanctions also.
1: So I'll ask the last question. You have a room full of decision makers at a critical time in our industries And drawing from your breadth of experience in crisis management and different experiences that you've had, what advice do you have for the people in the room about making decisions at critical moments?
2: The important part, I think, is decisions should not be a zero-sum game. I think that's the hardest part, and that not everything can be totally transactional. Sometimes there's a crisis and you do have to do something quickly, but for the most part, I think it's very important to get to know the people that you are making decisions with. One of the aspects that I find interesting from a governmental experience, one of the really important things that happens and maybe you've read about are these principles meetings where the cabinet members that are part of the decision meet in a room and a really good national security advisor we'll make sure that everybody's views are heard, kind of to break the eggs and figure out where everybody is to get an honest answer. And then you try to make an omelet out of it and try to figure out how there are some common grounds. The decisions that are really hard to make is when there is only one right answer and somebody really disagrees and then it does become zero-sum. The advice I would give is, first of all, to try to figure out what the problems are, but spend an incredible amount of time trying to sort out who thinks what and why. And then make the people in the room also think about what's wrong with their own argument. To make yourself always think about the argument and then be able to answer it. But it's that getting to know the people that you're making the decisions with and not thinking that you have to, that it's zero sum.
1: Well, on cue. Thank you very much, Secretary us. Okay,
2: thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people to find the show. You can always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time.